0: Good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to my third Gresham College lecture on the psychology of finance. Today's lecture is going to be called The Mistakes Investors Make. So how does this fit into the series? Well, in the very first lecture, The Psychology of the Stock Market, I discussed how the market is affected by emotions, not by fundamentals. And what we did last time was we looked at specifically some information that's relevant that the stock market ignores, and some information that is irrelevant that the stock market incorporates. But those last two lectures were on the stock market in general. What I want to do today is to drill down to specific investors to look at investor-level data to find the errors that investors make when they're trading. And this is hopefully not only just intellectually interesting, but also practically applicable so we can think about the mistakes that we ourselves might make when trading our own portfolios and find some ways to address that. Okay, so to think about the mistakes that investors make, I'd like just to uh, put the questions to you and, and to ask you a couple of things. So do you think that you're somebody who is below average in your driving ability? Or do you think that you are below average in your sense of humour? Or maybe below average in your ability to get along with others? Now, I'm pretty sure that most of you would not say yes to any of these things. And if the statistics are correct, you probably wouldn't put your hand up to any of of those at least 90% of the time. Indeed, because there's evidence that around 90% of people claim to be above average in all the three things I mentioned. Driving skill, ability to get along with others, and sense of humour. But that's pretty crazy, because statistically, only 50% of people can be above average. So what has all this got to do with the stock market? Well, if people think they are better than average, then they're going to be overconfident about their abilities, not only about driving and humour, but also about trading. Because if you cast your minds back to the very first lecture I gave in this series, I said that we should only buy or sell stocks if we have information which is not priced in the market. Because when we are trading, let's say, shares in Vodafone, we are trading with professional investors who are studying Vodafone every day. They might be talking to Vodafone management. They might be accessing information that we might not have. So if we are to trade, we are saying that we must have some unique insights that the main marginal investor, that most investors, don't have. And that's not impossible, but it is something which is unlikely. And so the implication of this is that investors will trade too much. They think they have novel insights, but in fact they don't have information that the market doesn't, and therefore um, they're not going to be able to profit. Now, you might think, well, isn't this something that they should learn from, right? If they make a few trades and they figure out, oh, yeah, I thought I had information, but it actually turned out not to be that. Well, actually, investors don't learn. They don't cure their overconfidence. And the reason for this is actually another bias. And this other bias is called the self-attribution bias. So let's say you go to a football stadium this weekend, which you're now allowed to in tier two locations. They've allowed fans back to the game. If a football manager wins a game, he will attribute this to himself. I had great tactics, I gave a great motivational talk. And if he loses, he won't say, oh, my tactics were wrong, or my motivation could have been better. He might blame the referee, blame having to play in front of only 2,000 fans and so on. So if you attribute every success to yourself and every failure to external circumstances, even if you're an experienced investor, And if you've encountered many failures, you still might not learn because you will think that those failures are nothing to do due to your overconfidence. Now, the problem with this is, well, how do we test this, right? If we ask investors how they do with their trades, it's pretty tricky. Why? Because investors will only report the trades that did well. And in most cases, an investor's trading records is private information, so it's going to be very difficult to try to get access to that data. So it did require a pretty innovative and novel guy to get this information. And this was a gentleman. He's he's called Professor Terry O'Dean. He's one of the leading figures in behavioural finance at the University of California, um, Berkeley. But he's a rather interesting character. Um, If you actually click on his website, he will start winking at you. Uh, Let me stop this in case it gets too disturbing. But... His actual first job um, was not working in, in, in finance. He was actually a taxi driver. He, he never graduated um, from uh, university. Then when he was 37, he went back to university and thought, oh, let, let's finish my statistics degree. He did, and he realized he was actually quite good at it, and then completed a PhD at age 47, which was not uh, the usual route that you take to becoming a professor. But because he had this uh, null un- un- side to him, he had another way of getting data which was playing golf. So he played golf with the CEO of one of the largest brokerages within the United States and just asked, can you give me the data on all of your clients' brokerage accounts? Obviously with the names redacted, and he managed to get this data. And this data set has been a source of some of the most cutting edge research in finance. Not only did he do some of this himself, but he also made it available to many other researchers. And so some of the papers were by himself, others were with his co-author Brad Barber. Um, but what they found was that if they looked at individual investors um, in isolation, what they found was that when investors sold shares, the shares that they sold ended up actually doing well, and the shares that they bought ended up doing badly. And indeed, uh, the difference between this is 0.23% per month in the difference in performance between stocks they bought and stock they sold. And you might think, well, 0.23%, that doesn't sound a lot, but when you analyze that, that's nearly 3% per year, and that's something which you could be losing every year on a portfolio of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. And interestingly, this is even before you take transactions costs into account, right? So if there's a computer randomly trading they would expect to win and lose half the time. right? It should be, av- it should be zero, the um, average underperformance. But here, they're actually losing even before taking costs into account. And then after costs, they were losing even more money. And then in the subsequent paper, what they looked at was when they looked at um, all individual investors in general and summed up the gains and losses across these different households, all well, they realised was that the market earned... per year. So if you did nothing, you did not trade, and you just tell the market, you'd have got 17.9%. Pretty good return. Right, they studied their data in a boom market. Households, on average, they actually slightly beat the market. They got 18.4%. That was gross of fees, ignoring fees. After fees, they underperformed. They had 16.7%. But again, you might not think that's too bad. 16.7 versus 17.9. But what was really interesting is how did the frequent traders do? You might think that the frequent traders are the more sophisticated traders, right? They are sophisticated, and that's why they're in 3D trading a lot. But what they found was that the frequent traders really did badly. They got 11.4% per year net of fees compared to the 17.9% that the market uh, typically uh, was earning. And what they also found was that the average investor held only four stocks. One of the most basic principles of finance is to diversify so you don't have all your eggs in one basket. What it found was these investors, well, while they didn't have their eggs in one basket, they put all of their eggs in four baskets. Now, that makes a lot of sense if you have lots of information about those four stocks, but the evidence suggests that they didn't because of the underperformance. So not only are they underperforming, even before you take risk into account, but then when you take into account that they were undiversified, then there's even further losses. Okay, so what's the big picture punchline for investors? It is actually a sobering one, is that we should not hold individual stocks because we don't beat the market. Perhaps we would leave it to the professionals. Maybe we were to invest in a mutual fund which is active, or maybe in a passive index fund, which holds every stock in the economy. And if we do choose to hold shares, right? then we'll just try to make sure that we don't trade them in a knee-jerk way. It's not that every time something bad happens, we're going to sell and move into another company, but just to sit on our hands and make sure that we're trading less frequently, because the evidence does suggest that if wholesales hold individual stocks, that's not problematic, as long as they're not trading too much. Now, if overconfidence is an issue, right, when is this issue going to be particularly severe? Well, some of the audience will like this, is that it depends on gender. So there's a lot of evidence that, that men suffer far more from this overconfidence problem, thinking that they're above average uh, compared to women. And why is that interesting? Well, in the data set, while there were no names, what they did have was the gender of the individual traders. And what Terry and Brad found was that men performed worse than women um, through their trading because of their overconfidence. Now, interestingly, it wasn't the case that an individual trade by a man was worse than an individual trade by a woman. Both of those trades lost a little bit of money. Remember, each time people trade, they underperform. And men didn't do worse than women. But because men just traded more, Right, they traded 45% more times per year. Aggregated across all of their trades, they were losing uh, more money. So on average, trading reduced men's returns by 2.65% per year. Whereas women, they only lost 1.72% per year because they were not so overconfident about trading too much. And interestingly, they could also look at the marital status and they found that single men traded 67% more than women, whereas for average man, it was only 45% more, and that suggests that for married men, they were able to have some female influence on the portfolio choice, and that reduced and that tempered the underperformance. Okay, so we all looked at one situation, which leads to um, outperformance, to, to, to overconfidence, which is gender. Well, that's something where it's, it's, uh, you're, you're typically born with, but what is something else which might trigger overconfidence. This is something known as the illusion of control. If we are in control of a situation, we feel that we're able to affect it more, we get more overconfident, even if the event that we've got control over is truly random. So let's say we go and play craps and we throw the dice, right? There are people who try to throw the dice particularly hard. Obviously, part of this might be for dramatic effect, but there are people who genuinely believe if they throw the dice hard or they will blow on the dice beforehand, the dice will turn up to a lucky roll. Now, what does that have to do with the, the stock market? Well, what um, some traders might want to do is to encourage people to trade. And one of the things that happened uh, a couple of decades ago was the move from telephone trading to online trading. So why is that powerful? Well, with a telephone trader, you don't think you've got fully control of it because you can't directly place the trade yourself. You have to call and speak to somebody else and they make the trade for you. But with online, right, you immediately make the trade and you see the confirmation, you feel you have more control over the situation. And so what Terry and Brad looked at was, well, what happens when investors move from telephone to online trading? Now, the interesting thing they did is they looked at, well, what happened before you made the move? And they found that what triggered an investor to switch to online was that he or she had done well in their last trade. But go back to my first lecture, this is the idea of overreaction. Maybe you did well in your last trade and you just got lucky. But what they found was that people over-extrapolated from that last trade and thought we must be an amazing investor just because we did well in the last trade that we did. Okay, so one good trade cause you to trade online. And now with your newfound freedom of being able to go online, you just traded a lot. So they traded more frequently um, and they also traded more speculatively. And more interestingly, they underperformed the market by three percentage points per year. So they traded worse. So again, that's interesting because it's not obvious because you might think, well, who are the ones who are choosing to trade online? Probably the more sophisticated investors. Because online, it's not just the control that you're getting. You've got access to lots of information, which you can look up. But even though you do have access to that information, number one, that information might already be in the market. That was my first lecture. And number two, it might be exacerbated by the fact that you have more control, and that's what's leading you to trade more frequently. Now, let me move to a a quite different topic here which is again about investor behavior, but rather than it being about overconfidence, it's about investor attention. Right, there are loads of things you could have done this evening. I'm really grateful that you chose to come to this Gresham lecture. Why did you choose this lecture? It wasn't that you looked over all possible lectures that you could have done or YouTube videos. Maybe you saw a a Twitter feed uh, feed or um, a LinkedIn article, or maybe you're subscribing to the Gresham College uh, newsletter. So that grabbed your attention. And similarly, if you choose to buy a stock, why is it that you chose to buy one particular stock? There's thousands of stocks, maybe in the UK or the US, and you could have bought stocks all around the world. So why one particular one? So what Terry and Brad thought was that attention is driving this. And the idea here is that if something has happened to put the stock in the news, then that stock becomes part of your radar screen, And then you choose the stocks to buy out of that small subset of stocks that have grabbed your attention. Just like you chose what to do this evening, maybe out of the small subset of newsletters you are subscribed to. And so what they looked at was various things that could cause you to um, be a, a stock which grabs attention. So they looked at, well, if a stock was in the news recently, if the stock had high trading volume recently, why? because that suggests there was an event that caused other investors to trade the stock, and maybe that event, you noticed that event as well, and that's grabbed your attention. So maybe the stock had some big news announcement, Or maybe the stock did really well, or really badly over the past day, and again, that might suggest there was a news event which caused people to think about the stock. Now notice here, what's really interesting is that attention only matters for buying shares not for selling why because to sell a share you can only sell the shares that you own to begin with most investors are not able to short sell and given you only own four stocks to begin with right your choice set has already been reduced and so you're only going to choose one of those four but it's for buying that you could buy virtually any stock and that's why attention really matters for buys but not for sells And so what they found was that individual investors, they ended up being net buyers of attention-grabbing stocks. And more importantly, those attention-grabbing stocks, they ended up underperforming afterwards. So the title of their paper was All That Glitters, and what they found was that All That Glitters is not gold, right? these stocks which are grabbing attention that led to individual investors buying them, and therefore they are underperformed afterwards. But there was no such effect for selling, right? Being in the news didn't lead to you being sold more. Why? Because attention doesn't matter for sales, because you can only sell what's within your portfolio to begin with. Now, interestingly, this did not happen for professional investors. It was only individual investors like you and me who were affected by this. And why is that? Well, for a professional investor, maybe you already have a small radar screen to begin with. So there are some professional investors who only focus on one particular industry or one specific geographic region, and therefore they've already managed to to narrow down their choice. Now, one final thing on attention before I move on to a quite different topic is also attention might come from within. So what I just discussed was attention that came from external events, right? If there was some extreme news or an extreme one-day return, but maybe you might get attention from how a stock does relative to the rest of the portfolio. And this was really some nice work by Sam Hartsmark of the University of Chicago. So what he looked at was he looked at an individual investor's portfolio and ranked the performance of those stocks depending on how much they gained or lost since they are initially bought. And what he found was that an investor was much more likely to sell the extreme winner, the best performing stock, and the extreme loser, the worst performing stock. So why is this? Well, if you're an investor who does hold quite a number of stocks, and not everybody holds four, some investors do tend to be quite diversified, then they might not analyze every single stock, they might not have time. Maybe they'll just look at the big winner, And look at the big loser and think, well, do I want to sell this or do I want to ride my losses a little bit more or do I want to take my profits? And so what they found was that when an investor sells, they've got a 31% chance of selling the best performing stock, a 26% chance of selling the worst performing stock, whereas the stocks in the middle, there was only an 11% chance of, of selling those stocks. And what's interesting here is that this also has some pricing influence to that. Because if indeed the best and the worst ranked stocks are more likely to be sold, well, how can we exploit that? Well, if we are to buy the worst ranked stocks and buy the um, best ranked stocks, because they are oversold we might be able to make money from them going forwards. And indeed, what Sam found was that if you're buying the worst-ranked stocks in particular, they, then you'd earn 1.39% per month going forwards. So the interpretation is that the stocks that did really poorly, right, they were the ones that an investor was most likely to sell. And what's really interesting about this is this happened not only for individual investors... But also mutual funds, so professional investors, exhibited this rank behaviour. And so why was that important? Because that's what's needed in order for us to put on a trading strategy. Like right, None of you know what my portfolio is, so you don't know what my worst-ranked stock is, so you can't predict what I'm going to be selling. But with mutual funds, right, we know what the holdings of mutual funds are. Right, in the United States, they need to report their holdings every three months. And we can figure out which are the ones that they are most likely to sell, given they've done the worst in the portfolio. And let's expect to buy them. So buy them after the period of time within which we expect them to be sold. And then because there's a lot of selling pressure, those stocks will be underpriced. And so we buy them afterwards. Then we're indeed enjoying this 1.36% per month, which is indeed uh, pretty high, about 15% per year. Okay, so that concludes my first segment, which is on the importance of overconfidence and attention, and just to make sure we don't lose the trees for the forest, like what is the big picture takeaway, to make sure that if we're to invest to have a diversified portfolio and try not to react too quickly to individual events, because that could lead us to trading too much and also trading too much on attention. Now what I want to do is to go through a series of studies which looks at some irrelevant information that investors take into account. Now you might think, well, isn't these things we've seen before because I said in my first lecture, football results are irrelevant information, so investors, yeah, we already know they take irrelevant stuff into account. But here what I want to look at is irrelevant information not at the market-wide level, Right, a football result affects the whole market, but irrelevant information at more the investor level. And one of the bits of irrelevant information is the price at which an investor bought the shares. So why is that irrelevant? So let's say the price of a share right now is 20 pounds. Should I buy or should I keep that share or should I sell it? Well, the only thing that matters is whether I think this share is worth more or less than 20 pounds. Well, if I think the true value of the stock is 25, I shouldn't sell it. uh, uh, Sorry, if, if I think the true value is 25, I shouldn't sell it. If I think the true value is 15 pounds, I should sell it because it's available for sale at 20. However, there's a lot of research suggesting that investors care about the purchase price, what they paid for the stock. Why? Because if I paid 30 pounds for the stock, and it's now traded at 20, I don't want to sell because I don't want to make a loss. But that doesn't make sense, because if I truly think the stock is worth 15, I do want to sell, because even though I'm going to make a loss of 10, which is 30 minus 20, if I don't sell and it goes down to 15, I'm going to make an even bigger loss of 15. So this is something called the disposition effect, the fact that investors don't like to take a loss. They tend not to sell losers, but on the flip side, they like to sell winners because they can lock in a profit. And this is something which is often attributed to a phenomenon called realization utility, where you get a jolt of happiness every time you take a profit, like you can tell yourself, I'm a good investor, I've made a profit, and you get a jolt of pain each time you take a loss, because then you have to admit to yourself that you made a mistake. But again, this is really irrational. Why is it irrational? Well, go back to my first lecture. What I found was that stocks that did poorly recently continue to do poorly going forward. So that was something we called momentum, right? So that means that if a stock is a loser stock, you should take the loss. Why? Why? Because if you don't, it's going to drop down even further. And similarly, what does momentum mean on the upside? If a stock has done well recently, it's going to continue to outperform. So if it's a winner, we don't want to sell the winner because the winner will become an even bigger winner. So really, we don't want to consider the price that we bought it at. All we care about is the current price compared to what we think it's worth nowadays. I notice that everything I've said so far is in a world of no taxes. Sadly, we are in a world of taxes. And if we add taxes to the equation, then this behaviour becomes even more nonsensical because if we are selling winners, then we are going to be triggering a lot of capital gains tax liability. We don't want to be um, doing that. And so what um, some studies found was that, well, if investors did not exhibit this effect where they are selling winners but not selling losers, then their returns would be 4.4 percentage points higher than than because of the momentum that they would be able to be exploiting. Now, not only um, is it that the purchase price of a stock matters, but interestingly, the original purchase price of when they started the trading train matters. So what do I mean by the trading train? That seems to be a really strange phrase. But let's look at the following situation. So let's say we bought Marks & Spencer stock for 10, then we sold it for 15, and we bought Vodafone. Now, what they found was that you're reluctant to sell Vodafone if it fell below not 15, which is the price that you bought Vodafone at, but the £10 that you bought Marks & Spencer at. So what they called this was rolling mental accounts, the idea that if you start the trade at 10, then even if you cash out something at 15 and buy something else at 15, then actually you still have the £10 price in mind. Okay, and then this also works on on the flip side, is that it applies for losses. So let's look at if we buy Marks and Spencer for 10, we sold at 8 and bought Vodafone, well, we're now reluctant to sell Vodafone unless it crosses back up to 10, which is the price that we originally bought Marks and Spencer at. So what we care about, again, is the original purchase price of the first carriage in the train, not the stock that we've most recently bought. And again, you might think, well, this is even more crazy because when we think about Vodafone, all that matters is the price of Vodafone compared to what we think Vodafone is worth. What happened to Marks & Spencer and what we paid for Marks & Spencer to begin with when we started off this train of trades, that's something which is completely um, irrelevant. Now, the second thing which is is irrelevant but investors take into account is past events. So I know that I'm moving away from the individual investor level now to the more market-wide level, but I think this is something which is interesting because this is something that investors pay a lot of attention to. So what do I mean by past events? Is that often when we consider any event, we compare it to what happened in the past, even if what has happened in the past is irrelevant. So there's some studies which look at what um, judges do. So what are the sentences that judges pass? Well, they pass less severe sentences after the last Crime that they discovered, that they discussed and ruled on was more egregious. Right? So, even if you committed a bad crime, if the previous crime that you sentenced for was even more egregious, then this new crime of the new person, the, the, the new defendant, is not as bad, then he or she gets off with a lighter sentence. And in a less gruesome example than this, Right, if you are to sing at karaoke, you never want to follow somebody who's a great singer right, because you're going to look badly in retrospect. So the idea here is that well, whether we consider somebody as good or bad, we don't do this in isolation. We compare it to something that happened in the past, in the recent past, even if it's something which is unrelated. And this is true with shares as well. Right, so this is just, before I get into that, this is just to show you contrast effects, right? If you to look at the um, C on the left-hand side, that looks lighter than the reverse C on the right-hand side. But why is that? Well, on the left-hand side, we're comparing this C with the big black. On the right-hand side, we're comparing it with the white. And therefore, this looks light and that looks dark. But actually, they are exactly the same in terms of their darkness. It's just what they're contrasted with matters. So let's move away from this little art example to a finance example, right? Go back to earnings announcements, which I discussed in my first lecture as being a really important event that happens to a company. So how do we assess whether earnings are good or bad? Well, what I talked about back then was we compare the earnings to what equity analysts thought the earnings would be beforehand. And so that was called an earning surprise. If you beat the expectations, that should be good news. However, what people find is that the market also cares about how positive were the earning surprises yesterday, right? Because if the earning surprises yesterday were really, really good, then your surprise just doesn't seem so good by comparison, right? So you're looking like somebody who could be a good karaoke singer, but if the last person was just a standout, then you just don't look good by comparison. So what they're looking at here, um, this is a paper by Kelly Shue and Sam Hartzmark, is on the x-axis, they look at the previous day's earnings surprise. And on the y-axis, they look at the market reaction to companies that announce earnings. And what they found is a clear negative relationship. So the better the stocks did yesterday in terms of the earnings they announced, the worse the reaction to any stocks that announce their earnings today. Because if rather, regardless of whether your earnings announcement was good or bad, it's just going to be looking worse compared to yesterday, if yesterday was really, really good. And interestingly, what they found was this effect happened across the board. You might think that if my earnings today are really, really good, I'm immune to this effect. Like, it doesn't matter how good earnings were yesterday. I'm just so good that people will react positively in isolation. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Right? No matter how good a karaoke singer you are, if the last person was amazing, you're just not gonna look as good. And so this is really interesting. So what this looks at is um, your company's surprises versus um, your, the returns that you get to how good your surprise was. And what they looked at was how what the earnings were like on the previous day and the blue versus the red finds that how this reaction to your earnings depends on whether the earnings on the previous day were good or bad. And what you see here is just a vertical shift from the blue to from the red to the blue. So if indeed the earnings announced the previous day were very good, then all earnings announcements today get downwardly shifted. So something which was really good and would have had a really good reaction now has only a mildly good reaction. Something which was mildly bad now has a really bad reaction. So across the board, what we see is that the market is just not impressed by any company that, inv- that, um, that announces earnings. And so if that's the case, right? how can a clever investor exploit the effect? Well, what she can do is, if she knows that yesterday many companies announce good earnings, then she could buy firms that... um, If if yesterday lots of firms announced good earnings, then today she will sell companies that are expected to announce earnings. Now, importantly, she doesn't need to know whether the earnings today will be good or bad. You can't predict that. But what she does know is that regardless of whether the earnings today will become good or bad, they will look less good and even more bad compared to because of what was happening yesterday. So again, just like you don't wanna follow a good karaoke singer, if indeed yesterday a lot of companies announced positive earnings, you don't want to announce positive earnings today. Okay, and this strategy earned you 15% per year. That's a massive amount of money. And that was even when focusing on large companies only, so it doesn't require you to trade small companies, which might be quite difficult to to trade. So one final thing, which is irrelevant information, which is information that people do take into account, and now I'm not looking at a finance stock application, but a real-life purchasing shopping application, is base prices. So what do I mean by this? Well, let's look at a situation, a blender cost 50 pounds. Now, if I was to travel five miles, I could find the same blender for five pounds. So would you go to that store to say 45 pounds? Now, nearly everybody would say yes, right? If I was to go to the other store, I would say 45 pounds out of 50 pounds, I'm gonna reduce my price by 90%. Let's look at a second situation. Let's say a TV costs £1,000, it would cost £955 at a store five miles away, would we travel to that second store? And most people would say no, right, because, yeah, we're saving £45, but that's £45 out of £1,000, that seems really small, rather than £45 out of £50. But that actually doesn't make sense, right, because when we think about whether to travel five miles or not, All we're going to do is compare the cost of travelling five miles, so maybe the petrol plus the time, and compare that to £45. It doesn't matter whether that £45 saving is off a £50 base price or a £1,000 base price. The only thing we care about is, is that £45 worth our time in going five miles away. But, as, I, as you probably guessed when you were thinking through this question I sent you, people do consider the base price. When they think about a £45 saving, they think about, is this a saving from 50 or a saving from 1000 even though that's something which is irrelevant, because what matters here is absolute savings, £45, not the relative saving, £45 as a percentage of an initial price. So the final section that I have, um, before we go to q and A, I'd like to talk about some information that is relevant that investors ignore. Like the last section was irrelevant information, like purchase prices that investors should not think about. Now I want to talk about relevant information that investors do ignore, but they should not. And the first set of information is base prices. You might think, what? Are you reading this correctly? Is this a typo? Didn't I just say base prices were irrelevant, and we should ignore them? Now I'm saying that they're relevant, and we should not ignore them. How can this be in both those sections? Because these two sections are about completely different things. But here, what's really important is that the base price matters in some settings, but it doesn't matter in other settings. So what I talked about previously was a shopping setting. Now, in a shopping setting, what's important there is you're buying one blender or you're buying one TV. Therefore, how much you're saving, it's £45 only because you're only buying one of the item. But when we're thinking about buying shares, right? we don't think about buying just one share. We think about investing a certain amount of money. So, I might want to invest £1,000. And well, if the stock costs me um, £1,000 to begin with, I'm buying one share. But if the stock costs me £50 to begin with, I'm buying 20 shares. OK, so here, what matters is the percentage change, not the pound change. So, let's look at the same numbers as previously, but now think about a stock setting. So, let's say stock A fell from £50. To £5. Pounds. I lose £45. Pounds. Stock B falls from £1,000 to £955. Pounds. I also lose £45. Pounds. But these things are not equivalent because the base price does matter. Because stock A, because that only costs £50 pounds to begin with, I would have bought 20 of those shares to begin with if I only had £1,000. So if I'm losing £45 per share, I'm losing 20 lots of that, I'm losing 900 And similarly, if stock B costs £1,000 to begin with, I'm only buying one share, so I'm only losing that £45 once. So the key thing here is that for stock prices, what matters is not the pound change, but it's the percentage change. So we do care how much you're gaining and losing compared to the original purchase price. Why? Because the original purchase price means that we calculate the percentages, and percentages matter for shares when they don't matter for shopping, because for shares, we don't choose to buy one share of one thing or one share of the other. We choose to invest a fixed amount of money in shares. So if a stock was cheaper to begin with, then indeed a given price change, a £45 loss, is much more painful because it's a loss out of a smaller base and a smaller base meant we bought more shares to begin with. Okay, so why does this matter? So what are the implications of this? Now, many investors, even though what matters is percentage changes, they often fixate on pound price changes. Because this is something which is just reported. If you look at some apps that you can get on your iPhone, what are they reporting at here? They're just looking at the amount. Up 1.9, down 0.07, up 1.13. That just tells you how much they've gone up or down in dollars. Doesn't tell you anything about it in percent. When it's, again, it's percentage changes that matter. And similarly here, right, if you look at, say, CNBC, right, a big source of information, what we see is how much stocks went up or down by dollars. But again, it's percent that matters. If a stock went up by $1 and it was $1 to begin with, we're doubling our money. If a stock went up by $1 and it was $1,000 to begin with, then that's a really small change. So what are the implications of this? Well, what it means is that stocks with low prices will be more volatile. Why? So let's say um, we've got two stocks, A and B, and A costs £110, and B costs £20. Now, if the market ignores the base price and focuses too much on pound changes, not percentage changes, then they might think as follows. They might think, well, if a new CEO is appointed, that will create one pound of value to the company. And so that one pound will be 10% if the stock costs 10 pounds, but it might be only 5% if the stock costs 20 pounds. Right, so what they should be doing is they should be thinking in percentage terms. They should think, well, a new CEO for every company should add 5% of value. But because we are fixated to thinking about pound gains and losses, we might think that a new CEO only has a fixed pound effect on a company's stock price, irrespective of that base stock price. And so what this means is that low-priced stocks will tend to be more volatile. Right? Why? Because if we think that any event has a fixed pound effect on the stock price, if the base stock price was low to begin with, then that's going to be a big percentage change. Now, you've got a lot of concerns here. Like you might think, well, are low-priced stocks smaller stocks, and therefore they're more um, susceptible to volatility? But the authors do a, really a lot of stuff to try to rule out all of those explanations. In particular, what they found was it's the price of the stock that matters, not the market capitalization, which is the true size of the stock. And then one of the most interesting parts to um, this paper by Kelly Shue and Rick Townsend is I looked at what happens when there's a stock split. So what do I mean by a stock split? Let's say previously a stock had 10,000 shares trading at £10 each. Well, a split now means that we've got 20,000 shares trading at £5 each. Nothing fundamentally happens to the company, right, because you've got double the number of shares at half the price but those shares now become significantly more volatile. Why? Because if investors still think about pound price changes, a given change now has a greater percentage effect now that the base price has gone down from 10 to five. Okay. Now, one other thing which um, is relevant but ignored is last year's financial. So this is going to be something which is quite different to what we've talked about previously. And so let's look at a a real-life example. So Borders Bookstore. Most of their sales are in the fourth quarter of a year. October, November, December. Why? People are buying books for Christmas. And indeed, um, in the 63 earnings announcements that they had from 1995 to 2010, the majority of these were in the fourth quarter. So what this means is that if there's a seasonality, what there's certain companies that do really well over the Christmas period, we should be able to predict that and investors should not be surprised by a company that does really well in Christmas because, well, they should predict that this is a seasonal company. And um, so the market should anticipate this and not be surprised by it. But what this study found was that on average, right, the market reacted positively to earnings that were announced in the fourth quarter and negatively to earnings that were announced in the first three quarters. Why? Because the market did not realize that that company always does well in the fourth quarter because of the Christmas holidays. So what does this mean? Well, again, there's a trading strategy. So you can look at how the company's earnings were over the past, let's say, five or ten years or so, and we can figure out, well, maybe some companies do always well at Christmas because they sell books and those are Christmas presents. Maybe for other companies, let's say they are beachwear companies, they do really well over summer. And maybe other companies, they do really well in the winter because they they sell ski equipment. And so what this means is that you can predict how well a company's going to be doing based on how well it's done in the past across the seasons. And if we were to buy companies where they're about to enter a good season, then we're going to earn four percentage points per year. Why? Because of the earnings being high in particular seasons. Now, interestingly, even professional analysts don't take this into account. Now, you might think, well, isn't this so obvious? Well, any professional person analysing a stock should take these seasonalities into account. And the market's not completely foolish. What they find was that analysts correct for 93% of the seasonality, but they don't go all the way. There's 7%, which is not incorporated. And that's indeed why we have that um, surprise element, even though it was perfectly predictable. And what's the sort of source behind these mistakes? It might be back to this recency effect that we talked about in the very first lecture, is that let's say a company, let's say a bookstore, did badly in um, July, August, and September, then equity analysts and the market are still thinking, well, maybe the next quarter will also be pretty bad, because the last quarter was bad, not realizing that the relevant thing to look at was not the third quarter, but the fourth quarter last year, last Christmas, and realizing that Christmas is always good, for bookstores, but they just didn't take this into account. Okay, so the final thing I'm going to discuss before we open it to Q and A is not last year's financials, but last year's non-financials. So why is this an important thing to end on? Well, one theme behind all of my lectures has been about the market does focus quite well, perhaps, on financial information but sometimes ignores non-financial information. And particularly in 2020, it's non-financial information, maybe on things such as customer loyalty or employee engagement, that matter particularly more. And indeed, in accordance to this, right, companies' annual reports have now ballooned in recent years. Right? The number of words that they have is now massive. Right? This is just a, a, a chart of how much the 10K, which is a filing in the US, has gone up, They had about 15,000 words in 1995, and it's now over 60,000, right? And one of the consequences of this is how are you going to be able to read all of these, these reports, right? They're just so long, people just don't have the time. But who can read it? Computers. And so what computers can do is actually compare the report this year versus last year side by side. And interestingly, what you should do is not to look at the report, but look at what changed from last year. So here's an example of a company, which is called a Baxter, where they added in these words in yellow, which you might not be able to read, so let me read it for you, it says there are substantial additional charges, including significant acid impairments, which will be required in the future. So what this suggests is that there was a problem with their medical device, and that was something that they were disclosing in the report. And indeed, after they filed the report in February of 2010, later on, it was recalled by the US Food and Drug Administration. So what this suggests is that, well, in these annual reports, if you look at the change from the prior year, that change will typically have some relevant information. Now, you might think, well, this change, sometimes it will be good, and sometimes it will be bad. But in fact, these changes are nearly always bad. Why? companies will only uh, disclose like, negative information if, if they're forced to, right? Because if they don't disclose it, they might be sued for it. Whereas with positive information, you're never going to be sued for not disclosing positive information. So what this final study, which I'm showing you, looked at was if we look at companies that change their reports significantly and sell them, and buy companies that didn't change their reports, then indeed you're going to be making 7% per year. But the really shocking thing is if we only look at the risk factors section of the report and look at companies that change that section, we are going to be making 22% per year by selling companies that change this. And so what is the lesson here that I want to leave you with? Like when we look at financials, we do compare them because naturally you look at earnings versus last year's earnings, that goes nicely in the table. But with the narrative with the verbal descriptions in the report, we don't often compare it with last year's. They don't sit in a nice table or a nice graph like numbers do. But this is something that we can do with machines. And if we were to compare what a company did to the prior year, then that is something which is indeed relevant and so we can use this in order to improve our trading decisions. Thank you so much to, again for for your attention and let's um, go to uh, the, the questions and answers.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Edmonds, for a fascinating lecture. We've got a couple of questions, so I'll I'll fire away. Um, The first one is, aren't earnings release dates fixed? And Therefore, is this a good trading strategy to purchase stocks which are going to release earnings T plus one if earnings sentiment was negative on the day?
0: Um, so I, I didn't know what the state's fix meant, but um, certainly when companies have their earnings, those, the earnings announcements are pre-scheduled, so you know what, what companies are going to be announcing earnings today, and then we know what the earnings were announced yesterday – And if indeed yesterday most earnings were positive, then we would like not to buy companies who are scheduled to announce today because it's like singing karaoke after a good karaoke singer yesterday. So that is an implementable trading strategy. And what was found was that you could use that with particularly large stocks. So it's not that you're going to have to trade small illiquid stocks to do that.
1: Another question here is, is momentum buying sensible, given the above examples, some of the examples you've given tonight?
0: Yeah, so I think, I think it is. So what I'm saying here is there's not so much momentum buying, but to avoid momentum, to, to avoid sort of selling behaviour, which um, is going to be in contradiction with momentum. So we don't want to sell our winners too early, because if we do that, then we are going to not exploit the momentum. But in contrast, if a stock has done badly recently, we would like to sell it, even though it's painful, right? We suffer some psychological loss, each time we realise a loss, because if we didn't, then the company will do even worse than it might do. Um, we might be throwing good money after bad. So, what I'm saying here is not necessarily just exploiting the momentum anomaly, but in our own trading behaviour when deciding whether or not to sell a stock, if we are going to be fixated and going to refuse not to sell past losers, recognise that you might be going in the opposite direction of momentum and failing to sell a stock which is going to do badly going forwards.
1: There's a question here about emotionally motivated mistakes do you think that robo-investing is a reasonable solution to mitigate those human urges to act in ways that are unbeneficial or are they, the robo-investing algorithms, too simplistic to understand the context and nuances and other factors?
0: I think it's an excellent question and I I think this is one of the the advantages potentially of robo-investors. I I knew that before um, artificial intelligence there were some investors which were trying to take some hormones or some some other measures of emotions of of their traders and if um, the, the data was negative, that they were going to be too overconfident or too emotional, then they wouldn't be allowed to trade on that day. And so robots might be a good example of trying to address that. Obviously, we then do want to recognize the limitations of robots, which is there are certain factors that do require human judgment. So we discussed last um, lecture that if we were to look at environmental, social, and governance factors, those are things that we want to take the context of the company into account, so robo-advisors won't be, or robo-traders won't be good for that. But if we are trading purely on financial grounds, like the momentum anomaly, that's something where a robot would outperform. And indeed, I might have mentioned in my first week that there are some funds which trade on momentum algorithmically. So AQR Capital Management has a fund where if you were to buy into the fund it just buys the past winners and sells the past losers automatically by calculating this and that's better than human investors because if you had a human he or she might be subject to the disposition effect and not be willing to um, sell past losers.
1: Um, Why is tech so popular at the moment when health might be more profitable? Um, So I
0: think think it's difficult to say whether tech or health is going to be more profitable or not. Like with tech, there could be huge amounts of of profits here just because we're moving towards maybe more more remote um, cases of working. But also, what matters for stock returns is not profits, but it's profits compared to what people think profits would be, right? So it's the comparison with expectations that matter. And if indeed people already know that healthcare is going to be profitable, that's already priced into the market, and so that's why a lot of healthcare companies are going to be expensive. Whereas with tech, there might be certain niche areas of tech where the market hasn't fully cottoned on to this perhaps being a profitable area. And so that's where something you might um, think that you might want to buy into because you think that the market hasn't fully recognized the power of tech, right? When the internet was first coming out, I don't think many people realized how powerful it would be right now. Um, An example I've given in prior lectures was the digital camera, right? So back then people were so used to having actual films and actual photos that even though we know now what we know, we didn't know this back then, and so people who went into digital cameras and invested in this would have done extremely well because they didn't recognise the true potential of that.
1: Um, are there any funds out there that focus on the behavioural elements you discussed in your lecture?
0: Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of types of funds. So Some of them will try to exploit the specific uh, anomalies that we have. For example, the AQR Capital Management Momentum Fund, that is A-M-O-M-X as the ticker symbol, that will look at momentum. There's some funds which trade on share buybacks, which is after a share buyback is undertaken, the stock price continues to drift upwards afterwards, perhaps because people don't react to the information fully. And also there's some funds which look at some of the more qualitative aspects, which are the things that the robots are not likely to, to study. For example, um, there's the Parnassus Endeavor Fund, P-A-R-W-X is the ticker symbol, I'm an investor in this fund, which looks at investing in companies with healthy workplaces and strong corporate cultures. And the idea here is that that's something which is quite difficult for the market for computers to assess, and therefore we think that it's something that um, human investors have a specific advantage in trying to figure out.
1: In the UK, there's favourable taxation for the first £10,000 or so of capital gains. Is there an implication for when to sell winners?
0: Yeah, so, so what I will typically do is I will um, sell winners if I'm indeed maxing out my capital um, gains. So just before, um, is it April the 5th, um, I will, let's say at the end of March, look at how, many my, how high my gains are. If indeed I've earned more than the capital gains allowance, I might then sell some losers in order to try to balance that so that my overall capital gains is not above the allowance. But if I'm under the allowance, then I would indeed want to take some capital gains there by selling winners. So this is not to say that we should never sell um, the winners. Sometimes selling winners is justifiable, but that would be based on using your full capital gains tax allowance in the UK, um, which they actually didn't have in the US studies, because in the US, there isn't the same allowance.
1: Um, Professor Edmonds, I've got one final question. I'm not sure whether you can help with this. Um, uh, One of the um, attendees is asking, does anyone know of an investing club in central London?
0: Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I I, I don't. It's just because uh, this is my bread and butter, so it's not something I've, I've thought of joining my, myself. So I've not had to uh, research this. But I like one of the again great things about tech and, and innovation is that there are these just clubs which are which are coming up all, all the time. So with something like Meetup, like even before the pandemic, there were so many interests that people would have, which they could um, look at look at that, and maybe more have sprung up since the pandemic because uh, in the lockdown, people do want ways in which they can discuss ideas And uh, hopefully, Gresham provides a way, but uh, there will be uh, hopefully other investing clubs that you'd be able to find.
1: Um, Thank you so much, Professor Edmonds, um, for the fascinating lecture. Um, uh, His next lecture is going to be The Mistakes CEOs Make, which is on Tuesday, the 16th of March, 2021, six o'clock to seven o'clock. Please do put that in your diaries.
0: Thank you very much, everybody, uh, once again, for their attendance and their interest.